It's time to shake up that paradigm. Welcome to Infinite Banking Radio. Hey, everybody. Thank you for downloading this month's podcast. This is Patrick Donahoe. You're listening to Infinite Banking Radio. Uh, We are coming to an end of 2013, and I've been thinking about what would be the best topic to discuss in uh, in December as we uh, conclude this uh, this really exciting year, and uh, and I I thought about one of the main questions and concerns that we get, uh, and I think we've received it probably for the last couple of years, and we've never we've touched on it a bit here and there, but never have really attacked it head on, and uh, so today we're going to be talking about uh, hyperinflation the devaluation of the dollar, a potential currency collapse, and how the, the services of Paradigm Life would be effective, uh, affected if that occurred. Um, so they're very, very legitimate, very relevant questions. So we're going to tackle that today. And I have uh, two of my good good friends and advisors here at Paradigm Life, uh, Brad Gibb and John Stewart, with me. What's up, what's up guys? I, I remember getting the, the eye roll once you guys heard that we were going to be talking about this. <laughs> so, but we've had a, we had a cool conversation as we were setting up, so it should be a fun podcast today. Uh, but before we get into uh, the content of the podcast, uh, we, uh, we, we have been making a lot of effort to put a lot of our resources online. So please go and visit our website, which is www.paradigmlife.net. And, uh, and there's some, those be some links wherever you've downloaded this blog from or uh, podcast from. Uh, but on there, we've, we've put a free e-learning course called Infinite 101. And, uh, and if you are a client of Paradigm Life and have been for a while, uh, we actually just barely launched our client page. And so you can uh, call us at 1-800-870-8670 and ask to speak to Danielle. And she will give you access to, uh, to the client page. And that's specifically for, for clients. Uh, and then also go back and listen to our previous podcast. You can access that on iTunes or you can uh, access that uh, on our webpage. Okay, so hyperinflation, money, currency, devaluation, a collapse. I mean, we've heard we've heard everything. We've heard everything, and it's a common question that uh, uh, that I feel is uh, is has been perpetuated by by some of the financial media, mainly uh, the alternative the alternative media. So I guess let's first talk about. Uh, what inflation is generally, just so those that don't have any understanding of what even inflation means uh, can can grasp that. And then we'll talk about hyperinflation. Then we'll talk about a currency collapse and what that means. Uh, and then maybe get into some countries that have gone through that in the past. Uh, and then we'll start to have a discussion in regards to uh, the likelihood of that happening in the future, what the different gurus are saying. Uh, and then finally, we'll talk about you know how, uh, how a policy or how a cash value, how an insurance company would be affected. So, Brad, you're you're the economist guru, math genius guy, spreadsheet genius guy. So, what what is what is what is inflation in a nutshell? How would you how would you explain that to your five year old? Well, we got a full plate to go through today, don't we? Um, so, inflation. It's good to make a distinction between what inflation is. On it, in its most basic underlying fundamental terms, and then how we all perceive and experience and interact with inflation. Mm-hmm. So inflation, its its definition, as far as I'm concerned, or at least the branch of economics that we talk about, I think we deal with mainly, would be an increase in the money supply. So the number of dollars or currency or bills or whatever it is in circulation, as that increases, that's inflation. Okay, and it per- so 
the amount of supply goes up and the purchasing power, because ultimately, you know, money has no value. What it's exchanged for is what has the value. But if there's more money out there, then that money will will basically purchase less. And, right? and that's the, the effect that we end up seeing and, and how we interact with it is that increase in prices. And, and you typically you have two people from the, the different fields. Some people explain it as the cause and some as the effect. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I think the majority of people that don't study it very far look more at the effect, which is the increase in price or the increase in goods, mm -hmm. where, as Brad was talking, you know, people that study it more tend to look at the, the cause, which is the increase in the monetary supply. Okay. So I think, I think we can all, or most people can go back and say, yeah, a, a Coke costs 25 cents or five cents, you know, in the early 1900s and it cost you know, a, do a dollar today. So why is there a difference in price? Has Coke, is, is Coke more valuable today than it was, you know, a hundred years ago? No, it's because, it's because of monetary policy. So what is, what is our monetary policy in the United States today? What, generally speaking, what's our monetary policy? We have a we have a central bank. Does every country have a central bank? Well, at this point, I think most do. There's virtually all most of them. I'd say most of them do. Mm -hmm. yep. So, what does a central bank do? It's charged with monitoring and evaluating and manipulating that currency base. I guess in most countries. So, it, first, it creates the currency. So, in the United States, we have legal tender laws. Okay, so. We, we, a state cannot go and create its own currency, right? The Utah cannot say, I want the Utah mountain as my currency. And the Utah prints the money and people can go out and exchange it. No, they're legal tender laws. And so what's the legal tender law in the United States? It, all, all money is printed by the Federal Reserve Bank. You got, so the dollar, what they print, they're in charge of, of circulating that money. That money is the only way in which we can really exchange. Now, there's you can exchange services, and there's you know black market and, and so forth. But generally speaking, the dollar is is the currency that we are charged with using to exchange for goods, and it's what we get paid with. It's what we exchange for goods and services, right? Okay, so the Federal Reserve, who's the Federal Federal Reserve? Or what? Who is the central bank? How was that created? Oh, good question. In yeah, you ask a lot of complex and, and answer it easy. You know, answer it. We're just going through general general stuff. Well, the, the, the Federal Reserve Bank, I mean, there were, there were several laws in, in 1913 and 1918 that created the Federal Reserve Bank. And it was, it was really as far as the public and the, the, the public view it was created to help stabilize the currency mm -hmm. and stop the run on banks and the, uh, the, the independent banks that had overlent and, and gone under. Mm -hmm. So and okay. it, it it's the banker's bank. So you and I, we can't go put deposits with the Federal Reserve, um, like we can go and put money in, in our Wells Fargo account or something. Yep. So it's it's the banker's bank where where each individual bank is required to hold reserves, okay. and and it, it it directly interacts with the the U.S. Treasury, our government, yep. as well as with those charter member banks, and 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 that's how it does its manipulation. So it doesn't interact or reach to us as individuals. Got it. Okay. So. In a, in a nutshell, they're in charge of creating the currency, number one. And, and number two, they, you know, I guess the initial thing with, you know, 1913, when it was, they're, they're kind of like the lender of last resort, right? That's, that's the common, you know, common rhetoric we hear. So lender of last resort. So if, if a bank, uh, you know, because they operate on a fractional reserve basis, which is they can have loans uh, that are, you know, outstanding, that are higher than what they hold in the actual bank itself.
Okay, so if the bank has a million dollars, they could have you know upwards of 10, 11 million dollars in outstanding loans. So if the people that came in and, and wanted all their million dollars back, it might not it might not be there. Okay, so that's where the Federal Reserve kind of steps in and oper- and helps operate the fractional reserve. And I'm not saying this is good, bad, or indifferent. We're just talking talking about the facts. So there's a book out there if you are interested, uh, the creature from Jekyll Island, very historical, huge book. Uh, by G. Edward Griffin talks about the history of, of how the U.S. because it's this wasn't the first bank, the first central bank that was ever created. Okay, this was um, you know some of the founding fathers wanted a, wanted a central central bank. Alexander Hamilton, I think, yeah, yeah, and we had two versions before. So again, th- this is it wasn't new, but Federal Reserve has been around for a long time now, hundred years, and that's the basis by which it was it was created. Okay, so what so, so another thing that the federal reserve controls it controls interest rates or in other words money supply okay so let's talk generally about that so what 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 interest rates does the federal reserve govern so again because it doesn't interact with you and me directly it doesn't directly control mortgage rates or your car loan rates or things like that but it controls the rate at which banks are able to lend to each other and to the federal reserve and borrow from the and borrow, and borrow from, from the federal, federal reserve, reserve. Yep. and that Interest rate then trickles into or influences all of the all the other rates. I guess you could say are kind of stacked on top of that. So as they move this rate, it's going to generally push in one direction or another all other interest rates. Got it. So the the two main rates are discount rate is the rate at which banks borrow from the Fed, and then you have the federal funds rate, which is the rate at which the overnight rate rate at which banks borrow from one another. Okay. All right. So now let's get into um, how what they've been doing over the last couple of years since 2000 and something similar happened you know with the market crash uh, in the early 2000s along with along with 9/11 um, so th- the Federal Reserve has been you know as, not as they've been involved with a lot of the the decision behind how do we re- how do we rebound from a, a difficult uh, financial time so what did, what did they do over the last decade or so uh, that is significant? Well, I, I assume you're talking about quantitative easing, the the the, the QE printing Which is of, one of the money. Way, one of the things that they've done. Okay, and they they've lowered the uh, the discount rate there mm-hmm. to an extremely low point point two five percent. And a lot of that, you know, as they they print the money and, and buy the different bonds, um, they they they've created the money that has allowed them to buy billions in in bonds per month. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that in turn has kept the interest rates for mortgages, et cetera, very low for the population. So why why did they do it? Because because if you look at what happened in in two thousand and eight, I mean there were a couple of days where just trillions of dollars were just wiped out. So how does how does money get wiped out in this in a stock market crash? Like, where does it go? I mean there's buyers and sellers, right? But it just stocks just sold sold sold, and people were just willing to let go. Of of their positions just to preserve some to preserve something and people just sold 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 you had massive declines and so what happened to that equity what happened to that capital it just it just disappeared so suddenly you have you know a bathtub filled with water and suddenly there is a lot of leaks going on a lot of money is leaving leaving the economy it's just disappearing so if the Federal Reserve didn't do anything what would have happened well the 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 drying up, if you will, wasn't just loss in equity either. There was a decrease in the availability of capital. Of credit. Yep. Borrowers couldn't borrow, and, and sure. on a fractional reserve basis, it's leverage. Yeah. And so it goes the other direction. When that, 
when a dollar is taken out of the system through this equity, mm -hmm. there's now $10 less that can be lent out. So for every, Great point. every dollar loss of equity was $10 lost in liquidity, which created the huge deflationary pressures that everybody was worried about. Yeah, because everyone's like, well, they're printing, they're printing, they're printing. There's going to be huge inflation. No, I mean, they're printing, but they're replacing money that had previously disappeared. Well, and it, it, it disappeared because it, it appeared in the first place. Yeah. You had money that came from nowhere yeah. that people, you know, really is, is you know, in, in 2000s, as, the, as they started printing the money, a lot of people had nowhere to put it, so they lent it to mortgages, created the housing bubble. As that happened, you know, people put it into the market, and so there's this imaginary money that was created, and then as the market fell, it disappeared, yeah. and now it's being created again. So yeah. it's just a... Another thing, too, I mean, and we can keep going on and on. We're, we're going to obviously move, move on. We can spend probably hours talking about this stuff. But another thing was people were getting foreclosed on, right? People were losing their jobs. People were going bankrupt. So when somebody goes into foreclosure, right, or they short sell their sell their home, I mean, essentially, that is money that is getting, you know, it, it disappears from money supply, right? Because if somebody files bankruptcy and gets rid of $200,000 of, of credit, that's essentially, you know, reducing money supply. People are no longer going into debt, but they're saving. That is also reducing money supply because obviously, you know, borrowing is essentially, you know, what, what they wanted to incentivize. All right, so you have all these things going on during 2009, 2010. Federal Reserve is just trying to keep the bathtub you know, full so that there's no massive price declines. There's no deflation. Okay. All right. So what are they, what are they doing today? So John, you mentioned that they are doing some quantitative easing, which is basically purchasing, um, bonds, mainly mortgage bonds, maybe and, most, mostly mortgage backed securities. Yeah. So we have one thing, I guess, and this is what we were talking about before, as we were preparing for this, one thing we got to realize is that the federal reserve just doesn't print money and just shows up in people's bank accounts. Okay, the Federal Reserve basically does, does what? They purchase specific things, right? So here they're purchasing mortgage bonds. So where does that money go? So I, I'm the Federal Reserve. I'm like, I want to buy a, a, you know, $80 billion worth of, worth of mortgage bonds. So I write an $80 billion check from nothing. Where does that go? It, it goes to the previous holder of that bond. Mm -hmm. They then receive the capital, give the asset to the Federal Reserve. So yep. they're now holding those, yep. those bonds. Yep. And, and now that person has money that they can go into the economy and transact. And a, and a lot of those bonds, I mean, it, it wasn't, most of it wasn't just private investors that had put their money up and bought it. A lot of those were banks that borrowed money from the Federal Reserve, created the loans to the population, and then sold them back and uh, sold them back to the Federal Reserve and made the haircut. So... There's also, I mean, and they buy, they bought treasuries. I mean, they have, they hold trillions of dollars on their, on their balance sheet, but it's basically, they have to purchase something. Uh, they don't just print the money out of nowhere and have nothing in exchange. Okay. Now they could do that, but right now they're basically creating the money, which essentially is exchange for some sort of a debt. Mostly yeah. there has well, to be a yeah. transaction, I guess, involved. We're not, they're yeah. not dropping from helicopters yet. Like we've all heard that yeah, helicopter we, we've not done yeah. that yet. All, all currency. The only way it can ever be put into circulation is through debt. You know, that's one thing, you know, the, the first time as I was studying this, someone said, if we ever pay off all of our debt, if we ever pay off the Federal Reserve, there will be no money in existence because the only way it can exist is with a debt. Yeah, yeah. So somebody has to borrow it for the Federal Reserve to give it to them. Okay. All right. So we've looked at, I mean, because we're always monitoring the economy, mo mo monitoring metrics. Uh, and there are a lot of signs that, you know, the inflation measures or price measures, CPI, PPI, the they're, they're very low. So why are they low? And it comes down to a point that you made, John, which is money is going to somebody, but
but the money just doesn't go into circulation. There's no multiplier. A multiplier is essentially they factor $1 goes into the economy and it gets exchanged for this and the person that received that exchanges it for something else and it just continues to trickle through the economy. That's not happening. Why? Well, because it's not really going into the economy. It's basically the, you know, with, 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 with the majority of the money that's being printed, first off, it's being borrowed to the bank and then it's being bought back. So the money's just sitting on reserve. It never really went into the economy. Yeah. And the majority of, of even these mortgage-backed securities are just refinances yeah. from old existing old loans. So it's even though they're buying billions and billions and billions, they're just replacing it with money they had before. Yeah. Well, and, and like we said, a lot of equity was, was wiped out in 08, and so these mm -hmm. banks became heavily under-reserved. So exactly. a lot of the banks are just holding it because they have to have so much capital on reserve for the loans that they do have out. And you can pull that data. I mean, there's trillion, I think there's a, a couple trillion dollars in excess reserves, but it's money that's not in circulation. Now, the, the Fed has the ability to, to, or not the Fed, banks have the ability to use that and lend that out. And if they did that, that's when you would have some you know massive fear of inflation and high prices, et cetera. But at the same time, if they don't, then we may have some stag, you know, stagnant growth over the next however many years. Okay, so let's kind of get let's get into that. So what are what do the what are the 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 hyperinflationists saying? Because a lot of I, I don't for lack of a better word I'm gonna use propaganda, but they're basically those that are really promoting this idea that there's gonna be hyperinflation. Uh, there's always something on the back end to sell, whether it's a membership of a newsletter or gold or something. I'm not saying it's a good or a bad thing, but at the same time, there is some sort of motive for, for an exchange of the information that they're promoting and perpetuating. So looking at what most of the hyperinflationists are saying without mentioning you know, who they are, where, where, is their, where are they coming from? What are they, what are they saying is, a, is a, a, uh, it's the bad thing, it's the, something that's going to affect everybody and, and inciting fear in people? Well, wow. well, I mean, they're they're talking about the the devaluation of the dollar. So, you know, your ten dollars right now might buy you lunch. In ten years, you're not going to be able to get anything for it. It's going to be worthless. So, all your investments, all your assets, all your income is going to be worthless, and you're going to be left with nothing when that happens. So, a lot of them are talking about um, keeping your money here, but protecting it against inflation. Gold and silver is a great example of that. Yeah. But there's a lot of other people saying get out of the dollar itself and get into investments that aren't going to lose their value the way uh, the U.S. dollar would. So a lot of them are saying you know, overseas with your money or your investments or the capital that's been held. So there's kind of two camps, I guess. There's probably more than there's that. There's probably more than that, that yeah. The yeah. main ones are protecting assets that you keep here with you and then getting assets out of the country and away from the dollar entirely. And, I've, and we've heard a number, I mean, there's some guys are saying, you know, back a couple of years ago, we're saying gold's going to go to $10,000 an ounce or $5,000 an ounce. Silver is going to go to $1,000 an ounce. Um, get your money into Canada. Get your money into the Australian dollar. Get your money. I mean, it, it's just getting into commodities. Get it. So it's, it's just base. It's basically, you know, obviously something on the back end to, to be sold uh, because of what's going to happen with hyperinflation. Okay. All right. So that's the hyperinflation side of things, which is and there's different definitions of hyperinflation. Sometimes it's you know 50% a month, 100% a month, I think, as far as price increases. So that's huge, and that wouldn't go on for very long. So let's let's talk about that briefly. So what are some what are some examples of hyperinflated economies of the past? Well, it's kind kind of interesting because you know as as, as Pat said when we started this 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 comes up, I'd say in in most conversations we have uh, to some extent or another. 
And I, you know, I did a little bit, most people know about Weimar Germany and, and quite a few know about Zimbabwe. Uh, and so I did a little research into it. And in the last hundred years, there's been 37 countries that have had a hyperinflation mm -hmm. and some of them multiple times. It's a, it, it, it is a common theme, um, but it's very short lived. And, and one thing that's very common between all of them, and, and don't know if we, you're, you're ready to go here yet, but most of them have a, a paper currency, not a digital country, uh, currency, currency, excuse me. Yeah. Um, uh, most of them are either, you know, it, it, it was either several years in the past or kind of third world countries where they're not as electronic and digital. So there, there's some very, you know, if you look at all the countries that have had this, there's some very different things between them and the U.S. Mm -hmm. So, and, and, that, and that's a good point because hi hyperinflation, the reason, what causes hyperinflation is that people have no trust in the currency. So they take the currency that they have, the dollars that they have, and they exchange it for anything of tangible value. And if they're doing that, and everybody is doing that, the price of whatever that thing is is getting bid up and bid up and bid up. And there's been some of you were talking, maybe it's Hungary was an example where prices would double every 15 minutes. Was that was that the for for a little bit? It's insane. So people so people lost trust in the currency and they just started to bid up, bid up. And now they weren't swiping their debit card, they weren't swiping their credit card, they had the actual physical currency, right? And they would exchange that physical currency for bread or for milk or for um, whatever commodity or, or gold or silver, et cetera. Okay. And, and, and I think that's an important distinction to make is we shift from a point of there's just more dollars going around, so I have to put more in the pot to get it, but I still yeah. like having uh, the dollar, I, I still, you know, I'm going to use it to a change in mentality of yeah. saying the only reason I'm using this this form of currency is because the government mandates it. I have to dictate all my prices in this, yeah. but as soon as I get it, I'm getting it out of my possession into something else. That's when we make that shift okay. from from just moderate ordinary inflation into that hyperinflation. Yep, and and again, this is this is how hyperinflation occurs. People lose that faith and they take what they have and they put it into something tangible. Okay, so this is kind of, you know, not necessarily a refute, but how is that less probable today? So let's say that suddenly the the United States no longer trusted the dollar. Okay? What what would essentially happen and how is that different than what happened in the different hyperinflated countries of the past? Well, it, I mean, there, there's a lot. Of, if you if you look at most of the countries that have had hyperinflation, the majority of them have got there because of a war, um, and a lot of them printed printed the money to finance the war. Um, so very very different then. The money was physically printed, and they printed thousand dollar bills, ten thousand dollar bills, up mm -hmm. to you know, uh, Zimbabwe has a a one hundred trillion dollar bill, yeah. um, and so they were physically printed paper money. Where you know our our uh, Federal Reserve is printing money like like crazy, but the money doesn't even exist, not even in a paper form. Yep. It's just numbers on a computer screen. It's very and, small percentages in paper. And so not only is it not in paper, it's not physically in circulation with the population. Yep. So how? So essentially, if I had no longer, everybody had no faith in the dollar, and I wanted to go out and get all of my money and put it into stuff that had tangible value, what would I have to do? Have to go to the bank. You either have to go to the bank or right. go use the credit card, depending credit on what you're buying. Yeah. Okay. So who controls how much the bank is going to give me and who controls how much the credit card company is going to give me? The bank. Yeah. And if, if you did it now, nobody would probably do anything. Individuals want off here and there. There probably wouldn't be an issue. But if everybody 
showed up at the bank to give me my dollars. Yeah. And that's hyper, and that's what hyperinflation is, right? Exactly. All right. So, well, and also you look at all these other um, countries, you look at, you know, retirement accounts, you look at, you know, they didn't, they didn't have them in 401ks in the stock market. They, they had them in dollar bills mm -hmm. under their bed in a tin can or wherever, you know, they, they, they had them in the currency. And I mean, so not only with the bank, but also all of our reserves we build up for retirement. Yeah. It can be locked up both with Wall Street, with the banks, yeah. and they're mostly in government-sponsored yeah. plans, which can be because yeah, the majority of savings as well. is in you know mutual funds or I mean positions have to be liquidated, right? So you drink my water? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Aren't you sick? <laughs> sick. <laughs> no, you are. <laughs> no, so you're right. So it's a great point, right? Because first off, with four hundred one k's, if with most employers, you can't just say, "I want to liquidate my four hundred one k." You have to be fired or quit before you can do it. Then you have to pay uh, a 10% penalty, and they're going to withhold at least 20% 20 there. And if everybody starts to do it, all these positions have to be liquidated um, from the from the market, right? They just can't give you the money. They have to liquidate positions. And if there's a massive sell-off, I mean, so you can you can see here that the the likelihood of uh, of hyperinflation is is. Uh, is not as high as it was in the past, just because of how we exchange these days. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And you know, one one thing, just to clarify a little more of what you said, is not only do the conditions have to be right for you to sell the positions, there has to be a buyer for those positions. Yeah, exactly. So we're we we're talking about this just yeah. just before the you know the podcast one one with Brad, yeah. mm -hmm. where he wanted to sell some of his positions, and he waited for nine months for those positions to sell. Talk about that quick, just briefly. Yeah, so I had in two thousand seven, I had a retirement account from an old employee that I'd forgotten about a couple thousand dollars in there. So I got my statement at the end of the year and thought, well, I I want to get rid of this and 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 get it out of there. And everything was invested in publicly traded REITs, so real estate investment trusts. And I hit sell for everything, and it took nine months to fill the position. And you can imagine what happened between December of 07 oh, yeah, and September time. of 08. What, there was what no buyers. Yeah. There was no, not a single buyer for oh, it. So we just waited with an open position until somebody bought. And it fell probably 80% of its value before there was a buyer for it. And, and it, in hyperinflation, it, 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 it's really the same thing. The value of the asset will fall because it'll take that, that many more dollars to... But the, con the contrast is if you had that couple thousand dollars in cash you would have had it immediately be able to spend it on something, right? Right, and that's the way it was. Yeah. You know, 100 years ago, a lot of people had lots of cash, where today we have a lot of what we feel are assets, yeah. but we have to trade them to get the actual, the actual cash dollar back. To, to move on. Got it. The, the, you know, the other interesting point to, to the world we live in, I guess a contrary to why inflation might be different this time around, is supposedly we have a smarter central bank, right? And because we've got, <laughs> you know, strings here that we can pull differently. The, you know, the only thing they could do before was print more money. Yeah. They couldn't really take money out of, yeah. of circulation, though. But now, you know, no, with our all-wise Ben Bernanke, yeah. and because there's so much leverage behind it, it can go the other direction. Yeah. So the idea is, well, they're watching very carefully, and they're smart enough to know when to, to, to stop putting money in and take money out, yeah. which would then, you know, keep in control everything that we're doing here. So they're... Because yeah, whether they're going to do it or not is a whole different question, but at least technically they do have some tools available to help moderate it that that, that weren't available. Yeah, I mean, the trillions of dollars that they have in excess, well, the banks have in excess reserves, they can they can reduce that. Mm -hmm. That they, they could, yep, they could stop buying assets. They yep. could they could sell them out and, and take the currency out of circulation. But there's, yeah, you know, they could just cut zeros off of yep. everybody's bank account. I mean, there's a lot of things that they could do that they couldn't really yep. do before. So the bottom, so the bottom line with this conversation is. Hyperinflation 
that the potential future hyperinflation, if you're basing it on what's happened in the past, it's not a sound argument. Because what happened in the past has variables associated with it do, that do not exist today. So predicting the future based on those variables is it's always going to draw a flawed conclusion. So that's that's kind of point point number one. Now, is there an issue? Of course there's an issue. What we've been talking about right now is really scary. The fact that banks, I mean, when's the last time you tried to take a, a large dollar amount out of a bank? I have I was listening to a podcast and there's a guy in there that he has a he has a yacht and he wanted to go to the bank to get cash to go get gasoline for his and it was like ten grand or something like that. And just to get ten thousand dollars in cash was like you know, it was an, it was a nightmare. So going to the bank and trying to get cash, number one, when there isn't a craze, okay, right now there's not necessarily a craze. Then you have the ability for a bank to limit how much money you take on a daily basis from a debit card. And with me, um, I keep some a decent amount of money just for payroll and you know reserves and stuff for for the company. And and my you know I had to beg to get my limit lifted to like five grand or more on a daily for for just cash. So banks have a lot of a lot of control over how much money is withdrawn, and it's that is really really scary. But it's the world we live in. It's how the economy works at this point. But what it shows is that the variables of the past that caused hyperinflation are not necessarily here today. Well, and, and the indicators are going to be different. As you were talking about, I was thinking, well, if if the demand for money exists but we can't get it, what would happen? Well, black markets would develop and things would change and we would see the inflation not necessarily in a sticker price on an item on the shelf. We would see empty shelves because there just wouldn't be anything to that it would it would so severely restrict trade that that we may not see it in prices, yeah. but there just wouldn't be availability of certain things. That's a good point. Yeah. So very good point. There's lots of different ways this will could play out, yeah. but just betting the prices are gonna go up, like you said, it's a flawed argument. Yeah. And we don't even know what assets are going to go up. Yeah. Last time it was housing, it could be stocks right now, it could be, it could be something else, oh, or it could be food, it could be oil, it could yeah. be a lot of different things. Yeah. We don't know. We know inflation's gonna go up. I mean it's our it's Federal Reserve monetary policy. They're they're they want inflation. They are scared ridiculous of of deflation. So I think they're gonna do everything they can to continue the inflation. So that's that's always gonna be a part of it. It's just the the hyperinflation aspect of it. And you look at any any country that has debt, they're always gonna encourage inflation. A debtor always wins with, with inflation. So the inflation is going to be there. It's just the, the hyperinflation or the quantity there that I think is the, the question. Okay. Okay. Good. I think we I think we hit number there. So so this is hyperinflation. There's a lot of people out there that are promoting buy gold, buy silver, which has obviously not been a good you know recommendation if you're doing it for the short term because those those commodities have, have tanked just because of how they're priced in futures markets and so forth. Um, but there's also some other... Uh, there's other perspectives on what could happen to a currency. So there is a potential currency collapse, right? That's another thing that we've heard, which is the dollar could be destroyed. So the dollar no longer have has relevance. It's no longer the reserve currency of the world because right now it 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 pretty much is. Um, so let's talk let's talk in regards to that briefly. So so again, the foundation of this is is really what we've been talking about already, which is. The Fed is out of they're they're manipulating prices. They're manip. I mean, it's crazy what they're doing, uh, and we're not saying that it's good. I don't think it's good at all. Any any type of man- manipulation has uh, unintended consequences and collateral damage. But the reserve currency. So what is what does that mean? First off, before we get into this conversation, what is the reserve? Why do they? Why is the dollar the reserve currency of the world? 
Well, we, we originally got the other countries to agree to it because we we're a gold-backed currency. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, so the Bretton Wood, Bretton yeah, Woods the, Agreement. Yeah. The Bretton Woods Agreement, uh, and, and, and there's several things you can read into, you know, and, and we, we've got the Bretton Woods. We've also got, you know, with, with all the oil, we agreed to be there for Saudi Arabia if, if they would only buy and sell in dollars. Yep. So we, we created a very stable, trustworthy currency when, when we were a stable country and, and got the rest of the world to agree that this was the, the standard that would be exchanged through all the markets as well as for all the, uh, the sales of, of gold, silver, and oil. Yep. And, and the impact of that on the United States has been we could export inflation, if you will. So rather than having all the currency and changes in prices, everything show up here locally, the, there are so many, there's so much demand foreign, you know, offshore for holding U.S. dollars and keeping it. Yeah. We could shovel a lot of it offshore, and then we weren't subject to the to the changes and price manipulation and things that that happen. So well, getting we, we could share the pain. Yeah, we we kind of <laughs> spread that around a little bit and kick the can down the road, I guess, if you will. And so the discussion around losing our reserve status is saying, okay, now all those people that are holding dollars, what are they going to do with it when they no longer are forced to trade in them? Are they going to dump them and get rid of them? And that, that's you know, one good example that, that could overnight, I guess, at least potentially just make the dollar completely worthless, as if all those countries say, we're not using them anymore, now I'm just going to transact in yen or whatever it is. And that could, that could potentially happen. So that being said... Is there what's the other argument? Why could that not happen? Why would why would that why would countries benefit from that? Well, first off, you have to look at, you know, I don't think we're gonna go back to swapping seashells. Mm-hmm. So there there has to be a currency, there has to be a world currency. Yeah. Um, and, and and I don't mean this to sound cocky or anything like that, but if not the US, then who? Who who else can handle it? You know, a lot of people say China. Does China really want to open up their communistic? Because oh, people know that they manipulate more, oh, more so than the absolutely. U.S. So, so really, I, I think there's going to be a demand for some uh, some value there, but uh, well, and, and a different currency. And but. what did we see in 2008? Didn't we see a big rally in the dollar? Yeah. Wasn't this the flight to safety? Even other countries, even with all the talk of well, you know, the dollar's getting shaky. Everybody came here. That, that's where everybody came. Yeah. So we've seen it even just recently that, that, you know, it's still viewed, even though maybe it shouldn't be, we're still viewed as the safe, secure place. Yep. Well, and it, it, it comes down to the, the best of the worst evils. Because even though we've got some serious issues with what, what's happening with quantitative easing, I mean, you look around, you look at Japan, you look at, you know, Europe, uh, you know, any of these quote-unquote stabilized economies, all have kind of the same issue. Yeah. And part of that is because they're they're doing the same policies. The other part is they're tied to the dollar. Yeah. yeah. So well and, and it's a race to the bottom with, with currency. I mean <laughs> we, we we heard just recently how we were everybody you know, the US was mad at China because they were manipulating their currency and keeping it very low. Uh-huh. Right. Uh-huh. And that helped their exports and hurt our imports yes. and all that. Well if if a if a weak currency helps your exports China wouldn't want a strong currency, uh-huh. right? So there's some, some incentive for all the other countries to stay below and keep that dollar up to kind of perpetuate what's been going on for the last 30 years anyway. So yes, there's lots of incentive for a country to get off the, the dollar standard, but there's also a lot of incentive to stay on at least a little longer or at least, you know, and, and, and be that low currency to help stimulate their own economies. Because well, it, it's all relative to, to what's around them. You know, just to add to exactly what you're saying there, uh, America's the biggest consumers in the entire world. We consume more goods 
than you know almost the the rest of the world combined when you look at that so for everybody else uh they're very very interested in us continuing our splurge and our spending well, we're, also and, the, we're also the biggest producer no not producer like manufacturing wise we're the biggest producer of ideas biggest producer of technology we're on the forefront of everything now i think you know japan is always going to be there china is always going to be there but there's always been an entrepreneurial spirit about the u.s where we're the one that creates the trend we're the one that has all the professional teams that everybody around the world follows and i of course see there's you know exceptions to that but at the end of the day that's not just going to stop happening and so there is a you know as a detriment there if there are ties cut with the u.s right so if china says screw the u.s that's going to have consequences that will com- completely implode that country and they absolutely that. yeah every country knows that yes. so but eventually you know the, the piper's got to be paid and yeah. something would happen and and at some point yeah we're the biggest consumer but if if i'm the one making the stuff and sending it to you and getting nothing in exchange eventually i'm gonna i'm gonna wise up and say well why would i continue to send it? i'll just consume it myself so there, that is yeah. is there's a there's a whole camp that's really talking about that and saying well these other countries are going to quickly re- realize that they're shipping us valuable stuff, yeah. TVs and goods and services, and they're getting nothing in yeah. exchange. And it would be better for them eventually to just, well, I'll just keep all my stuff. Yeah. And, and I'll consume it myself yeah. and, and, and get off of that binge of, of relying on us. So, yeah. again, this is just to point out there's lots of different ways to look at it and, yeah. and lots of variables that are going to go into how it's going to play out and when it's going to play out. Okay, so let's, let's transition into the point behind us talking about this. Um, so there was there was a bet made in uh, I think it was the late seventies between two economists. I'm blanking on their names. One one was Ehrlich, Ehrlich, and the other one was, gosh, I can't remember. But anyway, they bet they bet on commodities, and the and the reason why I know Ehrlich is because his predecessor is uh, he he basically is one of Obama's economic advisors. Anyway, but Ehrlich thought that there was going to be this like complete collapse because the world population was growing so. And this was, you know, the late late sixties, seventies. He thought there's no way there's enough food. There's no way there's enough what it resources to support the growing population. And they had a they had a bet, and of course Ehrlich lost the bet um, just because of of the point I'm about to make. The point is, um, there's never been a utopia currency. Really, I mean, gold and silver has always existed, but it's always been you know manipulated to an extent. Uh, I don't think there ever will be, and I think that's just human nature. We don't live in a we don't live in a perfect society or utopia society because all human beings are fallible. So if we if we look at what's going to happen in the future, and we're making specific predictions, you're always you you always have this ver- this unknown variable, and the unknown variable is human nature. Human beings are always creating; they're always innovating. And they're always do, doing specific things to make things cheaper, make things more valuable, et cetera. And we have, and I think right now we're on the biggest compound curve in the history of the world as far as technology is concerned. And we have no idea when some technology is going to break that that you know cures cancer or um, has free energy or extremely cost efficient energy. We have no idea when that's going to happen or what that's going to break. But it's an it's inevitable, and it's always been inevitable. There was a, a prediction by a guy. I'm not going to uh, name him. He's wrote, written a book recently, but he talked about this idea of peak oil and the fact that you know there the oil and the reserves are depleting. And but he was all basing that on the fact that he only knew about what existed as far as oil reserves. And pe- and it's not like people know exactly where every single oil reserve is in the world. But what happened since since his prediction, 2006, 2007, I think 2008, 
you had the whole fracking technology that was created. And that's just human, and it's human innovation. It's human innovation being able to be more efficient, more productive with, with the knowledge that they have and how to incorporate that into, a, into an economy. So we have no idea what's going to happen in the future. I love talking to, to clients around the country because um, it, it's just proof that we're always thinking. We're always trying to figure out business. We're always trying to figure out how to create value for people. And I'll give you one example. Um, there's a, a doctor that I've been working with, and she's up in Northern California. And Google and Apple just did a joint venture. And, uh, and they're going to IPO it, but it's called Doctor on Demand. What it is, it's the idea behind telemedicine. And individuals, as opposed to going to a hospital and spending hundreds and hundreds of dollars and, and you know, getting prescriptions and so forth, uh, they can have a doctor on call for you know, a fixed price, really cheap price, and you have these doctors that are accredited, they're screened, et cetera, and they appear and basically do a consultation. And she did a consultation. She was one of the first doctors with Doctor On Demand. And I uh, did a consultation with some lady that had some you know, goo coming out of her eye over Thanksgiving. And, and she got on it for 15 minutes, was able to diagnose it, give her a prescription. I mean, it was, it was fascinating. But right there, that's just one example of technology that is going to completely change uh, medicine. And who, and who knows what that's going to spin into. But you have stem cell stuff. You have biotech stuff that's going to – you have the idea of 3D printing. There's all these technologies that are on the verge of taking off. They can completely solve the healthcare situation. But, and we don't know when it's going to be. We don't know how it's going to look like. But my point is looking at the future and making bets based on what's happened in the past is, is irresponsible. And it's pretty unlikely to happen just because human beings are not on this static plane where they're going to stop. So the point behind hyperinflation or inflation or deflation or a currency collapse, first off, we have no idea what's going to happen. Okay? No idea. Okay, so if we have no idea what's going to happen, what is what are some of the best strategies? And this will start to you know wrap up and incorporate what we do here. Um, you know, essentially establishing a banking system within life insurance, high cash value insurance policies. So how? Uh, so, so what are what are the solutions? N- knowing what we do, knowing and if people have bought into you know our perspective on things, what do we do now? Where do we put our money? Uh, what action do we take? How do we protect ourselves? How do we sleep? well at night. I mean, what, what are some of the things that we can do now knowing this information? Well, I, I think, you know, I'd have to go back to just, you know, what, what would I do? And, you know, and talking to several economists and they say, you know, always be prepared for everything um, and, and not really buy down any one extremist view. And, you know, if you, uh, if you're looking at high inflation, you want to be in, in income producing, um, assets that, are, that appreciate. If you're looking at, you know, at a deflationary, you want to be very liquid. And I think uh, that that's one thing that the policy and one thing that really, you know, I look at with where I want the majority of my money is the and asset behind a policy mm-hmm. and being able to have my reserves be earning more than several other places, also have them very liquid, have the ability to leave, them, leave it there during a, a deflationary time and being able to pull it out and put it into to assets. To deploy it during inflation. Yeah, during, during an inflationary time. So it kind of gives me the, the best of both worlds. And, and, it, and to, to, to go build on that, the key point I learned from that experience I shared about the, the REITs that I owned in that account was trying to <clears throat> keep as far away from you or at arm's length that counterparty risk. Mm-hmm. Because we don't know where we want to be. When we, when we need to make that deploy of capital, 
to protect ourselves in either hyperinflation or, or, or deflation, we need that liquidity. Absolutely. And in our policy, there, nothing has to be sold to generate the capital. The, the capital is already liquid and it's contractually guaranteed that we have access to that and can move with it. Whereas where a lot of us, whether it was home equity you know, in 2008, uh, stocks periodically, even the things that got companies like Lehman in trouble, it was assets they, they card limits. that yeah. they assumed was liquidity, which was not, and, and it got them into trouble when they needed to move and be flexible. Whereas with a policy, our equity, our capital, it, it has to reside somewhere. And if we can keep it in the policy, it gives us that flexibility that when the signals arise and, and we need to be a first mover on it, we can have the access and be the ones to move. Okay, like it. What else? So my a big thing, a big thing for me is figure out how to make more money. Figure out. I mean, I think the best. Uh, Tom Wheelwright taught me this. Said the best, the best thing to be as far as inflation is uh, is number one. Uh, being in, in debt. If there's going to be inflation, the best position you can be in is a is a debtor position because the debt's going to be devalued, and and hopefully that debt is backed by a specific asset. So I think real estate, rental real estate, residential real estate. I mean, people are always going to want to live somewhere, whether they pay rent in dollars or pay rent in you know Utah mountains or whatever the freaking whatever the currency whatever the currency is going to be. People are always going to live somewhere, and as long as we have property rights and our ability to rent property, then we can collect rent on whatever. Uh, on whatever currency we want, um, it, you know, depending on what happens in the future, and uh, we have the contractual right to to do that. And individuals are always going to have a large part of their paycheck going toward their housing. Okay, that's that's a good a good idea there. Um, the other thing is is business. His big thing was business. Create a business. Create something that's just going to print your own money because you create a business and it's a value to somebody. It doesn't matter what the currency is. You'll be able to collect your revenue and whatever you want, depending on what, what the currency is. Okay, so that's another another thing. So it's it's not to have this fear-based mentality where you're going to build a bomb shelter uh, or a missile, you know, buy a missile silo and put a condo inside of it. I mean, it, the, the idea is we don't know what's going to happen. It's good to be prepared, but at the same time, don't let scarcity uh, poison your ability to produce. Okay, human beings have always survived. All these hyperinflated co- uh, countries are still there. Why Germany? They're still there, and they're really they're doing really good right now. And um, Ger- Germany's had multiple hyperinflations after after both wars, yep. and now they're one of the most stable uh, one in, in in the whole European Union. So, and a- as an amen to that, the the whole gold, guns, and bunker and food idea it, that's a pretty miserable existence. You know, <laughs> having to produce everything for yourself, yeah. and and the more we can focus on being good producers and being good exchangers and knowing how to create value. You will always, no matter what currency, currency is just to to ease and make exchange more possible. So the more we're on the producing and having surplus and able to exchange, the better off we're gonna we're gonna ultimately be. And again, to kind of come back to policies, the more capital you have in your control that's not locked up in a four hundred one k that you can't touch forever or or locked up in other things away from you, the more access you have to that, the more opportunities will come along to build those businesses and get into those opportunities that that give you the that flexibility and, and that control. Okay, I love it. Okay, any uh, any final any final words? It's a long podcast. It's a big <laughs> subject. <laughs> Might need to do a follow up on this, but yeah. no, I mean I think at the end of the day, my, the, what I try to resort to is I don't like to have a lot of negativity in my in my life. I think that carries over, and nothing really ever good come comes from that. And 
the, the sentiments that I that I receive when people are talking about currency collapses and society collapses. I mean, who, anything's possible. And I might be young, I might be naive, but at the end of the day, I look to the past, and one of the variables of the past is that human beings survive and human beings innovate. We all have a self-interest to do that. We all have a self-interest to benefit ourselves. And it's always driven humans. And it's going to continue to do so, even more so now. I mean, we have no idea what's going to happen in China. I mean, China now, they lifted you know, the one-child policy. Um, you have you know, more freedom. My parents have been in China for two years, and there's more and more freedom. They're still very, very, very restricted. But once they start to grasp freedom, imagine what those minds can do. Now look at Africa. As Africa has you know, smartphones and the internet incorporated in, into their society, think of what type of ideas will be generated there. We have no idea what's going to happen in, in life, but we, at the end of the day, we have to recognize the fact that human beings are always going to do what they've always done, which is produce, innovate, and try to better their lives. And essentially, bettering their lives benefits everybody else's lives as well. So looking at the future, I think us being able to control what we can control, it is the capital that we have. It is how we deploy the capital. Inside of a policy, I mean, it's one of the safest places to, to hold money. And you do have a liquidity that doesn't really exist in any other type of asset. And being able to have the gains, the dividends, the ownership of the insurance company, plus being able to deploy it to real estate, commodities, business, et cetera, I mean, it's, it's, you have the best of both worlds because you don't have to choose between two types of assets. And again, it's going to incorporate the idea of being able to avoid debt, being able to create business, create cash flow, et cetera. So I feel at the end of the day, we're all very f- philosophically in tune and, and we look at our client situations and the concern that they have. So maybe as we, as we end this, as you guys have conversations in regards to those that do have some fear in association with hyperinflation, currency collapse, et cetera, how, how does that dissipate after this conversation and why does it dissipate? Well, I think, you know, they, they say knowledge is power. And usually the people that are the, the most scared, uh, scared of this concept really um, are, are looking, like you say, at a very limited. They're not looking at all the facts. And so sometimes just someone being more informed, it doesn't, doesn't mean they're not still scared of it, but they have a little better understanding of it. Yeah. And, and the last thing I guess I'll throw in there is, I, I, like you said, how, how you try to remain optimistic. You don't put your head in the sand. We don't stop looking at, and that wasn't the point of this, is to say that this is all a boogeyman thing. There are, there are legitimate threats out there, but it's understanding that it, there's lots of factors that go into it, and just deciding on one, I think, is just as dangerous as deciding on nothing or not looking at anything. Absolutely. And, and it, it's keeping you know, aware of the situation on top of it, and really, it, and, and this is infinite banking to a T, it's about control. And, and whether it be through knowledge or access to your capital, it, it's about you being in control of the situation and knowing what's coming. So that's, we all have our own opinions as far as exactly how, how we think it might play out. And we purposely didn't put those out here. We just wanted to talk about the, the you know, what's going on generally. We have our own concerns about how it's going to play out, but it was more to make you aware of, of looking around, knowing what could be coming from, from which direction and, and giving you that little bit of knowledge that might yeah. help, help you sleep at night and, and know uh, how to start to put together a, a plan. Awesome. Okay. Well, yeah, this is a very long podcast. We'll probably do a follow-up to it, but I appreciate you guys and the insight that you, uh, that you gave. For those of you who are listening, uh, you can see these handsome two guys. If you uh, go onto our YouTube channel and the, the whole podcast was, was uh, uh, video, video recorded, so you can look at the video podcast as well if you, uh, if you want. But that's all for, uh, for this month. That's all for this year. Uh, definitely go and check out our website and some of the new resources that we've put on there. The majority of them are, are free. If you are a client, 
as I said in the beginning of the podcast, uh, get in touch with Danielle at the office uh, by calling 800-870-8670, and, uh, and she can help existing clients have access to uh, to the client page. Uh, but that's uh, that's it for this year. Hope to see you guys next year, and uh, thanks for listening.